0: Episode 158 of the TruthQuest podcast, The Truth About Monopolies. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as the COVID 19 vaccine, the Senate filibuster, modern monetary theory, local politics, or leftist lunacy comes up, please share the topic specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on a host of platforms, including iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean. It Shoot, Brighteon, ThinkSpot, Rumble, and Instagram where I post a short highlight of each show at Instagram.com forward slash Whatever platform you may be listening to this on, please take a moment and give it a five-star rating or hit the like button or leave a positive review. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest Podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through online advertising See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. So a couple weeks back, a lawsuit brought by the Federal Trade Commission against Facebook was thrown out by a district court. The FTC claimed that Facebook maintained a social networking monopoly via anti-competitive conduct. As of January 2021, the five most used social media platforms worldwide were Facebook, YouTube, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and Instagram. Of course, Facebook owns four out of those five. The government argued that because of that, Facebook had a significant amount of control regarding how data is shared, how advertising is conducted, and the fact that consumers have very little in terms of other options to use leaving Facebook essentially in a monopoly position with little competition. This got me thinking, and when that happens, it usually turns into a TruthQuest podcast episode. So I'm going to provide a little history about so-called monopolies in, in the United States, and then focus your attention on the real and dangerous, sometimes literally dangerous, monopoly government. Generally speaking, there's two types of monopolies, depending on whose definition you're using. It's usually coercive or non-coercive, antitrust laws were designed to deal with coercive monopolies to prohibit monopoly pricing. The only problem with that whole theory is that when a monopolist sticks it to the little guy through higher prices, that tends to invite competition. So it doesn't always work out as cleanly as they lead you to believe. Now, on the other hand, non-coercive or efficiency monopolies are those that grow organically because of the outstanding product or service that they offer the market. Usually, they are the most efficient firm in their industry, and usually they have the lowest prices due to those efficiencies. When you study monopolies in the United States, standard oil and U.S. steel are usually at the top of the list. In 1911, Standard Oil was broken up into 33 companies due to the powers from the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. You may recall J.D. Rockefeller founded Standard Oil. The story of this company is quite extraordinary and could be an entire podcast episode itself, but suffice it to say it was an extremely well-run company that consistently lowered the price of its products over the decades in business. That same year, U.S. Steel survived its court battle with the Sherman Act and went on to lobby the government for protective tariffs to help keep it competitive internationally. But it grew very little. Andrew Carnegie went a long way in creating a monopoly in the steel industry when J.P. Morgan bought his company and melded it into U.S. steel. It was a monstrous corporation approaching the size of Standard Oil. However, it was not run with the same vigor and efficiency as Standard Oil. At one point, U.S. Steel controlled about 60% of the steel production in the country, but competing firms were hungrier and more innovative and more efficient and eventually ate more and more of the market share. In the 1950s, the federal government wanted to break up General Motors. In hindsight, how stupid and short-sighted was that? Because of the large market share that GM and, and Ford and Chrysler had at the time, they were fat and happy, producing crappy cars. That opened the market for the rise of the Japanese, who were the world's leading car manufacturer less than 30 years after the potential monopolistic breakup of GM. Look at all the choices we have today in America in car manufacturers. Fast forward another 30 years or so to 1982 and at and which at the time was a government-supported monopoly. Now, this is an example of a coercive monopoly, disguised as a public utility, whereas all the others we've discussed were non-coercive. They were just organically grown companies that grew their market share. Like Standard Oil, the AT&T monopoly made the industry more efficient and really wasn't guilty of fixing prices because they had to go to the government to set prices, but rather they had the potential to fix prices, which is what got them in trouble. So the breakup of AT&T, known as Ma Bell, by then President Ronald Reagan in the 80s, gave birth to the Baby Bells, which were a series of regional telephone companies that provided services to consumers around the United States. Some of these names may be familiar. Ameritech, Bell South, Bell Atlantic, Southwestern Bell, and there's a couple others. In 2005, Blockbuster Video and Hollywood Entertainment tried to merge. An antitrust lawsuit was brought against them to block the merger because they would have too much market share and could gouge customers. Turns out Netflix was taking market share from these guys. I don't know how many of you remember, but Netflix started out by mailing CDs to customers, and you just mailed them back when you were done. The merger of Blockbuster and Hollywood Entertainment was the only way that they were going to survive a few more years given the competition, but the government stopped the merger. A few years later, no one even rents videos other than what, Redbox? In the years prior to that, Microsoft came under investigation to determine if they were trying to develop their own monopoly. That case was centered on whether Microsoft was abusing its position as a non-coercive monopoly. Again, Bill Gates grew Microsoft from nothing organically, provided a great product that millions and maybe billions of people enjoyed. Just as U.S. Steel couldn't dominate the market indefinitely because of innovative domestic and international competition, the same is true for Microsoft. A non-coercive monopoly only exists as long as brand loyalty and consumers feel no need to search for a better alternative. Here's the money quote for this episode. If you remember one thing, it's this. The only real monopolies in the Western world today is government. And out of that government monopoly comes power, corruption, fraud, inefficiencies, and abuse of power that can only be wielded by government. Think about the amount of monopoly power and corruption governments exercise with the use of force. Think about law enforcement. Think about what the NSA is doing to us today. Think about the FBI, the CIA, even down to your local sheriff, the amount of power they have. What about the monopoly power of the IRS? Think about the power that that agency wields. Audits, threats of audits, disclosure of all your financial movements. It's hideous. How about the monopolistic court system or the system of justice? We have a dual justice system driven by the monopoly power of use of force and the corrupt law enforcement. We have one system for well-positioned Democrats and one for everybody else. We have seen government law enforcement officials who get away with stuff that the average citizens find themselves in prison for. Talk about a monopoly power. James Clapper lies to Congress, nothing happens. FBI lies to the FISA court on a regular basis, and to date, I'm aware of one agent that had a bullshit slap on the wrist. Then we have people like Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, and even Donald Trump. I mean, the list goes on and on. Think about the amount of fraud, waste, and inefficiencies associated with government monopolies in places like the post office. I mean, what is the post office known for? Shitty service and it loses billions of dollars a year? think UPS and FedEx have that luxury? What about the DMV? What is it known for? Shitty service and long lines. Why are there always lines at the DMV? How would you compare the line at the DMV to a line at Starbucks? Think about the passport office or any social services office. The public education system. I mean, sure, you can send your kids to a private school or homeschool them, but do you get a refund on that portion of your property taxes you pay to cover the public school? These people have no skin in the game. They are dealing with other people's money, which always means inefficiency and shitty service, which is one of the reasons government monopolies are dangerous. The easiest way to know you are dealing with a real monopoly is by asking a simple question. What is my recourse if I feel harmed by a perceived monopolist? Usually your answer is, shop somewhere else. Take my car to another mechanic shop. Drive instead of flying. Go to another social media platform, download a different app. If, however, your only answer is to call your congressman, if that's your only recourse, you can be damn sure that you are dealing with a real monopoly. For example, where does Trump go to get his presidency or his reputation back? You know, the one that was harassed with a faux Russia collusion investigation and two bullshit impeachments? You know, the one where the government has a monopoly control over-the-counting of votes, whereby a handful of corrupt public officials in a handful of battleground states—well, actually a handful of heavily populated, heavily democratic counties—who can engage a handful of criminal co-conspirators to rig the election with a series of voting improprieties, irregularities, and illegalities. See how damaging monopolies can be, especially if they are the government. I will grant you this— the National Republicans are largely to blame for the escalating nature of the Democrat-related agents and agencies who misbehave and perform illegal activities. I mean, the Republic is only as strong as its weakest check-and-balance partner. So I save the best, most intriguing question for last. What the hell can be done about big tech? specifically the exclusive censorship of people, companies, causes, channels, and political campaigns that do not agree with the Democrats' agenda and or current talking points. It sure does feel like a coercive action taken by a supposedly non-coercive monopoly. I call them non-coercive because these businesses, these social media platforms, were established by providing a service that people love and desire. No one is forced to use these services. And after all, there are alternatives to Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, right? But how do they get away with selectively deplatforming and or demonetizing people and companies? Any objective person can see the perversion of their power by wiping the former president of the United States off their platforms. This is wrong on so many levels. On the one hand, they talk about how stupid the dude is. He tweets too much. He talks too much shit, makes a fool of himself. Then they wipe him off their platforms. It doesn't make any sense. If he's as much of a loser as they say, let him speak and make fun of him. Instead, we are experiencing purposeful, selective, targeted censorship by these platforms. And what's worse is they are taking their direction from the National Democrats. Don't believe me? Here's a clip from Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, from last week, explaining the collusion between big tech and the White House to combat misinformation and disinformation. Listen to some of the phrases she uses in this clip. We are flagging controversial posts. We are in regular contact with these social media platforms. Trusted content, low-quality information, anti-vaccine misinformation, meeting with influencers who can spread accurate information. And most incredibly, she says there's 12 specific people whose free speech needs to be eliminated, all because... They do not agree with the government's current advice about COVID. The federal government is not God. It's not blasphemy to disagree. Check out episode 103, The Truth About Political Blasphemy and Heresy, for more on that. Here's the soundbite.
1: Well, first, we are in regular touch uh, with these social media platforms, uh, and those uh, engagements typically happen through members of our senior staff, but also members of our COVID nineteen team. Uh, Given, as Dr. Murthy uh, conveyed, uh, this is a big issue of misinformation, specifically on the pandemic. In terms of actions, Alex, that uh, we have taken or we're working to take, I should say, from the federal government, uh, we've increased uh, disinformation research and tracking uh, within the Surgeon General's office. We're Flagging problematic posts for Facebook uh, that spread disinformation. We're working with doctors and medical professionals to connect uh, to connected medical experts with popular with popular who are popular with their audiences with uh, with accurate information and boost trusted content. So we're helping get trusted content out there. We also created the COVID 19 the COVID community corps to get factual information into the hands of local messengers. And we're also investing, uh, as you will have seen, in the president's, the vice president's, and Dr. Fauci's time in meeting with influencers who also have large reaches to a lot of these target audiences who can spread and share accurate information. You saw an example of that uh, yesterday. I believe that video will be out fr- tomorrow. I think that was your question, Steve, yesterday. they did a full follow-up there. Um, uh, were There also proposed changes that we have made to social media platforms, including Facebook, and those specifically are four key steps. One, Uh, that they measure and publicly share the impact of misinformation on their platform. Facebook should provide publicly and transparently data on the reach of COVID-19, COVID vaccine misinformation, not just engagement, but the reach of the misinformation uh, and the audience that it's reaching. That will help us ensure we're getting accurate information to people. This should be provided not just to researchers, but to the public so that the public knows and understands what is accurate and inaccurate. Second, uh, that we have recommended, uh, proposed that they create a robust enforcement strategy that bridges their properties and provides transparency about the rules. So about, I think this was a question asked before, there's about 12 people who are producing 65% of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms. All of them remain active on Facebook, despite some even being banned on other platforms, including Facebook, ones that Facebook owns. Third, uh, it's important to take faster action against harmful posts. As you all know, information travels quite quickly on social media platforms. Sometimes it's not accurate and Facebook needs to move more quickly to remove harmful uh, vi- uh, violative posts. Posts that will be within their policies for removal often remain up for days. That's too long. The information spreads too quickly. Finally. We uh, have proposed they promote quality information sources in their feed algorithm. Facebook has repeatedly shown that they have the leverage to promote quality information. We've seen them effectively do this um, in their algorithm over low-quality information, and they've chosen not to use it in this case, and that's certainly an area that would have an impact. So these are uh, certainly the proposals. Uh, We engage with them regularly, and they certainly understand what our asks are.
0: The totalitarian nature of that clip is mind-blowing. You do know that the same big tech companies blocked content challenging mask-wearing, hydrochloroquine, social distancing, lockdowns, and the origin of the Wuhan virus, all of which was accurate? So these platforms blocked truth from being published on their platforms. And now the White House has taken it up a notch. Seems dangerous. Seems seems like the behavior of a government-granted monopoly. Still don't believe me? How about the email exchange between Dr. Fauci and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, in the early months of the COVID-19 outbreak, where they discussed how to get, quote, authoritative information from reliable sources on Facebook. Even though in the months that followed, Facebook went on to censor any content that Fauci and his crew deemed non-authoritative, even though it might be true. So what's my point? My point is monopolies really don't exist in modern society anymore. So much of what we buy or consume is done online. Sure, there are pockets of some communities where choices are limited, i.e. there there may be like one drugstore, one grocery store, one hardware store, but those are very isolated occurrences and not really the subject here. An example of a real modern monopoly is big tech. Yes, they establish themselves in a non-coercive manner as discussed. They have a service that millions or billions of people want, and there's no charge for most of their services, except that they collect all your data. However... These companies have only existed due to government-granted privileges, namely protection from liability and slander lawsuits. As I explained in episode 126, The Truth About Big Tech Censorship, this law, section 230 of the Communication Decency Act of 1996, provides legal protection to social media platforms for online speech. As Peter St. Ogg, writing for Mises.org, put it, This was a special immunity from liability for user-posted content, so long as the company acted as a platform open to all comers. Think common carrier rules, like the phone company. Ironically, an original selling point of Section 230 was to prevent censorship by creating a safe harbor so companies could let people express themselves online. And that's how Section 230 worked for the first 20 years, on the understanding that active censorship would convert an online platform into a publisher with the same liability exposure as, say, a newspaper. If people go on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube and talk shit about someone else, you can't sue the platforms. That makes sense. However, that protection only exists if they are just a platform, meaning they don't censor people. Once they start doing that, they lose this protection. They essentially become a publisher like any other news outlet or newspaper, with full libel, and slander liabilities. Ironically enough, the preamble to Section 230 states that the law's purpose is to, quote, to encourage the development of technologies which maximize user control over what information is received, end quote. In reality, the opposite has happened. Users have no control, while the companies have all the power. Just ask Donald Trump or Alex Jones or Milo Yiannopoulos. What Big Tech has essentially done is grant themselves unlimited power to editorialize their users' content while avoiding any legal liability for doing so. Their selective, targeted censoring of non-Democrats is a clear violation of Section 230. And make no mistake, without the government granted privilege of Section 230, these companies and platforms would not exist. They, they certainly would not exist in their current form. They would have to monitor every post to their platform, and they would spend all of their time and money fighting lawsuits. The point of this episode was to drill into your heads that whenever you hear the word monopoly, think government. The government is, by its very nature, a monopoly, from the use of force, to the post office, to the court system, the IRS, the DMV, etc. Government also permits monopolistic behavior on the part of private sector entities by granting privileges and immunities that permit them to act in ways they could not under normal circumstances. So with the federal government forbidden by the Constitution to restrict free speech, Big Tech, with protection granted by the federal government, does the bidding of totalitarians in D.C. by censoring misinformation and disinformation two terms that mean nothing or they mean whatever our fascistic leaders in dc say they mean and that's the truth about monopolies please join the conversation on facebook at facebook.com forward slash truth podcast <laughs>